I wanted to issue a content warning about this episode. If you've seen this episode, you know that it deals with the deaths, the suicides of some characters, as well as containing a non-consensual sex scene. And my fellow hosts and I do discuss these events in the story. If that is something you feel may affect you, then I may recommend that you skip this episode if you feel so compelled. Another note about this episode, more production-wise, is that our internets were spotty, especially with Cole and Jacob's internets earlier in the episode. I tried to salvage their audio to the best of my ability, but it levels out after about a third of the way through our calls. But nonetheless, I apologize that this isn't necessarily to the best quality, not through the fault of any of my fellow hosts at all. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic's review of the 2005 HBO original series, Rome. HBO's Rome, Season 1, Episode 9, Utica, written by Alexander Cunningham, directed by Jeremy Potswa. Um, I wanted to note that just for the annals of history. If my voice sounds strained, if I sound choked up, if I sound emotional, it's because I had to relive this series fumbling the bag so hard. The first half of this episode is a banger, all-time great. Train rolls along fine. The second half of this episode is another train wreck, in my opinion, and I, I'm not being hyperbolic on that. I told my fellow hosts today to watch this episode as, cl- as close to recording time as possible. Our primary host, Jacob, finished the episode about 15 minutes ago and will walk us through <laughs> it in chronological order. Jacob, going for gold here. What can you tell us about Utica? Yeah, so welcome to episode 9, Utica. We are very quickly going to learn why it is named that as we enter the land of, well, wherever Thapsus is. I assume it's Egypt. Um, and it's in the African provinces of Rome, which actually would not be Egypt, but yeah, somewhere. somewhere. Oh, okay, somewhere. We are we are told it is after the Battle of Thapsus in a subtext on the screen. Scipio and Cato the Younger are set beside a downed elephant and an enemy who assumedly was riding that. Cato wears an incredible amount of fatigue on his face, on his body. The man is worn down. Cato and Scipio are alive, but it would appear that they have lost, and lost definitively. Scipio suggests that the two of them leave to Utica to find food or shelter. Cato says he needs neither. Uh, Scipio suggests sleep then, to which Cato responds, sleep would be pleasant. And them and what's remaining of their soldiers head towards Utica. BP. I This is my only note for the scene. It was, I'm sorry about the elephant, Kay. Um, yeah, that's why it's my least favorite episode. Um, I do like the elephant. It's just like <laughs> a metaphor of like, you know, it could represent the Republic, great and giant, dying. Uh, what Cato yeah. says about it, elephants sleep standing up. When they fall, mm-hmm. they cannot rise again. And that really, he has so much prestige and greatness behind his name. And he has fallen and does not expect to rise again. He sees himself mm-hmm. in that elephant. Uh, his his words ring poignant uh, or mm, foreshadowing. His final words uh, uh, there, elephant, foreshadow the next uh, actions he takes. So we arrive in Utica. Scipio and Cato settle into a very rundown house. It's the best available to them at this point. Scipio says that he thinks he will get drunk tonight and invites Cato to join him. Cato declines. Scipio says, cheer up, we live. 
And where there's life, there is hope. Cato responds, I think if we've done anything, old friend, <laughs> we've disproved that proverb. The food and drink aren't of the highest condition. Cato comments that the bread is stubborn and asks uh, one of their soldiers, Aquinas, for a knife. He then remarks that Scipio should, if he can, make peace with Caesar. Scipio says he would not do that. He shall do whatever you, Cato, do. Cato responds, I would not do that. Go your own way. Scipio then puts the conversation to bed, not wanting to sit with the depressing thought. Cato uh, excuses himself to use the restroom, uh, conspicuously palming and taking the knife with him. Cato sits, contemplates for a moment, eyes the knife, then plunges it into his chest silently. The great Cato the Younger, the ultimate fighter for the Republic's ideals and virtues, dies there. Scipio does eventually notice Cato took the knife with him and, and goes to find him, but it is too late. Cato the Younger is dead. We cut to outside of Utica. Scipio and the soldiers sit around a funeral pyre honoring Cato, and Scipio, after a moment, sends away the soldiers uh, and instructs Aquinas to it now before I continue. BP. Uh, this is a question for Kay, or if anyone else can answer this question. Is crema cremation uh, actually a ritual in Roman history when somebody dies, or is that just something an artistic liberty that the show took on? Like, like a religious ritual? Yeah. Um, you know, I cannot accurately say BP, but on my area of expertise, but if I remember correctly, it, in like Roman mausoleums, like people's ashes would be cremated there. Like that's more common for Romans, whereas the Egyptians, uh, their royalty were um, made into uh, mummies. mummies, quite literally. Yeah. Mummy. Uh, Scipio instructs the soldier Aquinas to do it now. Scipio will not be going his own way, as Cato wished for him. In his final moments, Scipio will stay true to that which he spoke to Cato. I shall do whatever you do, as he instructs the soldier Aquinas to slit his throat. With this, all opposition to Gaius Julius Caesar is no more. Cole. I want to say a couple things about this whole section of the episode. Uh, firstly... When uh, Kiddo picked up the knife when he went to go to the bathroom, I was like, oh, is is this happening? Because like, uh, there are not a lot of options for what that what else that was going to be. So I was like, is he, is he going to do it? And then he did. I was kind of disappointed in Scipio because I'd, I feel like it was made quite clear that like, Kato's, like last wishes, so to speak, were go your own way, like make peace with Caesar. And so he's like, no. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to keep following you. And my it's, final thought... Oh, go ahead. Uh, it's. It, I was just going to say, it's a hard decision to make. As we'll learn throughout the course of this episode, this is a theme that presents itself in a Roman soldier's life a lot, wherein you're faced with the choice of bowing down and kneeling to an opponent or taking the honorable and noble way out, which is death, which might include taking your own life. So continue. My last point was... a. I was uh, rewinding through the episode to just kind of refresh myself on everything that had happened once I had finished it. When I got back to this, I was shocked because like I, I had forgotten that this it seems like a whole different life ago that this mm -hmm. very impactful and powerful moment happened this episode. Yeah, I, I was going to ask guys um, just like um, especially Cole and BP, like how 
how did you guys expect Kato's story would resolve versus what was shown on screen here? Like Cole, I think you kind of, you know, maybe said your piece there, but BP, I'll, I'll ask you. I definitely thought that Caesar was going to do what he probably wanted to do with Pompey, which was execute him, but do it in a respectful manner, so to speak. That's okay. what I thought would happen where he's just, he's caesar thinks okay you betrayed me i just i want to i'm gonna execute you for it but i'm but i know i have a lot of respect for you for what you did for the roman republic okay okay cole do you have any thoughts you wanted to add on to to what you saw not necessarily on how i felt about this outcome just uh want to point out that uh i'm two for one so far on uh the characters i thought were gonna die this season so we'll we'll see if uh my my last one kicks the bucket as well. All right. All right. Um, Jacob, do you want to add anything about your thoughts on the depiction of Cato's death? And well, this was, this was something I was eagerly anticipating, actually. Uh, eagerly sounds morbid, but it, it, in the telling of DOTRR, it, it is a very powerful moment where Cato is this beacon of uh, uh, the Republic's true ideals. And uh, it, it, it rings as, as very powerful that he is so stringently tied and so strict self to those values and morals that he would rather kill himself than be brought down by Caesar. So uh, I thought the moment was fine. I was just excited to see that they, they did it. So Yeah. And, and then uh, in Rome, they make an utter mockery of the event in the very next scene. Yeah, they do. So we, we cut to the streets of Rome. Uh... The events that we just saw, uh, news travels, and we see a play is being performed with caricatures of the great Scipio and Cato. Uh, they mock the two of them with topless women before the both of them pantomime their own suicide. Caesar and Brutus are in the crowd uh, looking upon it uncomfortably. Go ahead, BP. Well, Cole, you get to win a betting pool here. This uh, is another Game of Thrones reference. It reminded me of the sequence in Game of Thrones when... Arya is watching the play of the War of the Five Kings and they're mocking it. Oh, thank you for reminding me, BP. I wanted to make another joke of that nature. Uh, I wonder uh, the, if the audience is eagerly awaiting as much as I am in what ham-fisted manner BP will remind all of us that Jacob, for the purposes of this podcast, has never seen a TV show. <laughs> That's true. That is my thing. It's it's factual. Uh, something I'll, I'll say about the play real quick. It, it's a uh, uh, the the actual events happening. Like Cato is like terrorized by sexuality in it. Like the the woman exposes her breasts to them. Uh, there is like a big like a fake phallus that is shown on there, and Cato is very upset by that. And it's it's mocking his conservative, uh, idealized values in Rome, which is you know different than our conservative American mm -hmm. values, but there's some overlap, I there's suppose. Some parallels, yeah. At the end, the actors thank the crowd and rejoice that it is a happy day that which our father has returned and the Julian sun has risen, banishing Pompeian night forever. Caesar and Brutus clap along half-heartedly. We cut to the streets of Rome. Pullo and Verenus are walking. Occasionally, people are welcoming them, welcoming them back to Rome, and Verenus sets eyes upon his family. Verena, the elder and younger, run to him, and he assures them that he's home for good. Niobe looks on 
and Verena's closer the distance between him and her. Uh, they don't have words for one another. They simply embrace and uh, they they share a nice, lovely kiss. Polo looks upon them solemnly, I would say, as into their home. Inside the Verena's household, the place is looking pretty darn nice. Verena uh, is surprised and notices they now own four slaves, it would seem. Um, Verena's comments, it's, oh, that's a lot on a soldier's budget, but we learned that Niobe and Lighty have taken up uh, what I believe was Evander Pulcio's old butcher shop, and it is being pretty successful. Oh, I never did. Was he a butcher? I don't remember. We, they, they explicitly state that in this episode. So, Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. So um, back outside, uh, I go to BP. Back outside BP with the, with the comment. <laughs> this is just another example of just time passing so rampantly throughout this show because they also mention i think it's niobe that says it that's been a year since everything has happened and i'm just kind of like dang there's a lot of there's that's a big jump yeah they definitely do state it somewhere um i thought i had it in my notes so maybe it's not here maybe it's later but there is a comment that's been at least one year if not two I, I um it's actually about to come up here, Jacob. Um okay. it, it's also nice to see as well the again, the very real development we can see between Verenus's relationship with his family and wife. Like compared the first time he came home in episode two to him coming home now in episode nine, and uh, so much has changed, so much is different. So much has changed. Uh, uh, that later. Oh <laughs> back outside, Polo notices Irene and hugs her. Uh, we hear Irene speak her very first words of the show because she now knows Roman, um, wow. Latin, <laughs> semantics. Uh, <laughs> but uh, she doesn't seem to share the same exuberance in seeing Polo and uh, refers to him as master. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there is some kind of power hierarchy that at least Irene still uh, observes or notices or is referring to. Uh, Polo retrieves a gift from his bag and presents it to Irene. It's an Egyptian bracelet from what I can uh, surmise. And uh, Irene does seem charmed by this gift. And Polo stares upon her and utters lovely. A nice kind of moment between Polo and Irene. This is definitely a moment where I'm, it's, I think it's a sweet moment for Polo because you can just tell he is a completely different person about around Irene than he is with anyone else and i think we're kind of i wouldn't necessarily say it's a different polo i think this is the polo that he actually is he is just this sweet charming guy that really likes irene yeah and um i'm not sure if irene feels the same but i guess we'll see over time uh let's cut to uh the forum the roman square as i apparently have it in my notes the newsreader is describing the festival of parentalia and details the wonderful foods that will be there. True Roman breads for true Romans. Cut outside the walls. Timon is leading a small entourage and remarks to the now older Octavian who is taking a leak on the aqueduct. Um, you'll have to censor me. Timon's words, not my own. Uh, fat old yourself, huh? Must be nice to be home. What's it been? Two years since you've been gone? Octavian immediately uh, retorts. Uh, again, Octavian's words, not mine. Are you still my mother? Uh, Timon, when she'll have me, Octavian. That that explains your excessive familiarity. Ultimately, Octavian does relent that it does feel good to be home, and we cut to Octavian arriving at the house of the Julii <laughs> home. 
Uh, and Atia and Octavian, or Atia and Octavia, welcome Octavian with hugs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Atia tells Timon that she will see him later, and Timon turns, and we see a disappointed look in his eye. Well, the line preceding it was really good. She tells Octavian, let's get that horse stink off you. Literally cut to Timon stepping <laughs> up like, my time to shine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Cole. I just want to say that uh, I think it's a, a pretty uh, clear like, interpretation that like Timon is bummed because he's like, aw, I wanted to, to do the sex with Adia. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. But it's like... You, She's seeing her son for the first time in two years, and you think that's what she's gonna do? Well, I guess it's Adia, so it's not off the table. It's, but... You know, who knows? Go ahead, BP. Something I, if you had asked me in episode one if I would have said this, I would have said no. But after a couple episodes without him, I miss Octavian. It was nice to see him back. It was nice to see the roast that he had for Timon. It's a uh, nice to see him back in the fray. He's, he's a the song. actor visually aged too in the time he was away. Like it's kind of like a Mike uh, season one versus season four of Stranger Things to me. Really, that big of a jump? You think uh, that might be an exaggeration? But I w- I would say like uh like um it is it is visually noticeable that the kid I, I'm I don't know was he away from set for I like two years? See, like I didn't know if I was like talking myself into thinking he looked older. I was like I guess I could kind of see it, but maybe not. I was thinking the same thing. Uh, we will cut to the home of one Servilia. Brutus, uh, her son, is rushing her to attend a, uh, a dinner hosted by Caesar uh, at Attia's home, I believe. It's that they must go as honor demands. Servilia's this honor. Uh, it says my internet's unstable again, so hopefully I don't sound too bad. Uh, and changes to saying uh, not honor, common sense. Uh, Brutus goes on to say he cannot ask mercy of Caesar and then turn around and refuse his friendship. He simply must go. Uh, Servilia butts in saying, what kind of man asks for mercy in the first place? Oof. Ouch. That's your own son, Servilia. Go ahead, Cole. Yeah, that's like, it's her own son. So it's like, so you're saying you would have preferred your son been killed. Like that's, that's the reality. You're you're like kind of saying, I'd prefer you were dead right now. Mm -hmm. It's like brutal. Whew, yeah. Um, Brutus goes on to speak about how he is not proud of himself, um, but because he is not dead, uh, Servilia must find contentment somehow in that. Uh, Brutus continues to tell her, actually, don't come, but Servilia emphatically says she will come because to would be seen as a weakness. Brutus goes on to say, well, maybe it'll be nice for you to see him, him being Julius Caesar. After all, he is just a man. The loss of his affection is not worth endless rage and sorrow. And Servilia states she feels neither rage nor sorrow. It is not personal, but it is political. Yeah, I, be- I believe that after what happened uh, a couple episodes ago. I do believe it partially. I don't know if you're being uh, sincere, but I was, I don't know. I was yeah. not. It was sarcasm. I'd, yeah, I feel like it's I, very much motivated by sight. I feel like there she could have her political um, reasons as well personal. So I guess mm-hmm. I see both sides. But yeah, there probably is a personal pinch. Only a Sith deal is an absolute after all. Anyway, uh, we're now at Atia's dinner. Uh, Caesar and others are talking war business. Caesar remarks he must arrange a triumph. And Servilia arrives. Atia greets uh, her and Brutus, uh, noticing Servilia's mourning shawl, and asks, has someone died? 
And Servilia so mean. Servilia remarked that many people have died. This is just the <laughs> this is the moment. This is the moment where I'm saying it now. I hate Adia. I hate her. I, this I just, is the moment. This I, is I think, the moment. <laughs> that, this one was a step too far. He could forgive the rest of it, but now this was complimenting uh, the morning shawl. I'm this out. This is a. This is a. It was a. It's just the statement that I've been wait, wanting to say for a few episodes now. Wasn't this moment particularly, but this episode as a whole just made me hate Adia even more than to finally say it on this podcast. There. In. From the horse's mouth, I hate Adia. I'm calling her a horse too. E gads, you really do hate her. Uh, Brutus, Brutus cuts away. He notices the now older and taller Octavian, and uh, Octavia shares a knowing glance with Servilia. Uh, we cut to the party a little later. Some time has passed. Assumedly, some drink has been consumed. Some food has been eaten. Caesar describes to the party a giraffe. And they're amazing. I got it right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and he's talking about how oh, I'm trying to have them at the triumph, but they don't like traveling overseas. They keep dying. Um, Adia suggests that after the triumph, Caesar should rest, but Caesar insists that that is when his real work begins. Uh, they engage in some conversation about blah, blah, blah. What do you do to win this work, etc.? And uh, there are a series of knowing glances shared across the circle. A curious look from Octavian to Octavia, a nervous look from Octavia to Servilia, and an again curious look from Octavian to Servilia. Caesar then asks Octavian how he would proceed if he, Octavian, were him, Caesar, in uh, helping to fix the Republic, per se. And Octavian goes on to, to state uh, that he would start this large public program um, employing citizens, not slaves, to work on public works, fixing infrastructure, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and add at least 100 senators that are, are soundly on my side and not hidden enemies. There's this great exchange with Brutus here where uh, Brutus, you know, like Octavian mentions, like uh, real, real loyal people, not hidden enemies. Uh, Brutus, he asks about what he means by this. And uh, Octavian says, not you, Brutus. I believe your capitulation is sincere. And he's like, how nice of you to say so. <laughs> <laughs> um, Caesar asked the chief auger uh, about one of his men, something. He, he was a pontiff. Uh, Augur marks that he died in the Battle of Thapsus. Caesar then acknowledges that Rome will need a new pomp then, and in the moment appoints our young Octavian. The augur remarks, Octavian is so young. Caesar rebuts, saying, oh, I was not much older when I entered the church. Octavian also rebuts this, though. He says, I would not make a good pontiff, and we'll kind of find out a reason why later. Not much of a religious man, this Octavian. Um, but he does state he would rather focus on his poetry. And Caesar is not budging, though. He, he uh, Octavian, you should be pontiff. And finally, Servilia, she at last speaks up, stating uh, with daggers in, in her words. Uh, I, I have Poetry is a young man's calling? Well, there's a sentence before that I've typed incorrectly, so I'm trying to make sense of it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It should not wait too long. Poetry is a young man's calling, don't you think? Yes, and shares this tense stare with Caesar. We cut air outside Varinus's home, which I have dubbed Varinus Square. Varinus is telling a war story to the kids. Uh, Pullo is whittling. Irene is gathering water. BP has a comment. This is the funniest moment for me in this entire episode. Just, he... Uh, knocks over everything 
and his kid just starts crying. And I oh, laughed his really kid? hard at th- his kid or not his, his grandkid. Kid. His grandkid. Yeah. Quote unquote. Grand cuck. Hey, yo. <laughs> Local uh, news podcast host laughs at crying child. <laughs> uh, I found I just love Varinus's response. Oh, don't cry. It's just a game. That is the funniest moment for me in, in this reference to episode. war. Uh, yes, uh, Polo goes to help Irene gather water. Irene asks him not to, as her master, Niobe, will be angry. Uh, kind of some leftovers that maybe Niobe doesn't like Irene because I think because she thinks that Polo planted her there, uh, for espionage. Um, as the two go inside with the pail of water, Niobe does stare sternly at Irene as they pass, and Varinus uh, scares Lucius as. BP described, causing him to leave and cry. Um, and we, in this moment, we learn that Varinus has been sitting around for a little while, about a month. But Varinus kind of likes it. He doesn't want to work at the butcher shop. But Niobe eventually relents and, uh, you know, is like, or Niobe doesn't relent, but like kind of pushes him like, it will give you something to do. Guys, this is my funniest moment of the episode. I, I don't know if I've ever seen something so funny, like in such a serious show it on hbo before so it's like i want you guys to study varinus's facial expression as he uh as he says shopkeeping just look at varinus's face like did you guys catch how like he's like shopkeeping like his face is like a a 15 year old girl trying on homecoming dresses or something like that he's like Like, oh my god it's so uh petty and catty and uh, Mark Antony was right. You know, Varinus's original goal was to become a merchant, a slaver, a grocer. And Mark Antony said, that's beneath you. And now Varinus feels that it is. Yeah. And he, like his, oh my God, it's so funny. It's so great. My favorite spot. Excellent. I never would have even considered. Yeah. It's like poetry. It rhymes. I'm so, that it does. Um, and so, yes, Niobe insists that Varinus work at the butcher. And guess what? Next scene, we're at the butcher. And who is working there but two former th- members of the 13th Legion? Varinus and Polo, because what Varinus does, Polo must also do. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't seem <laughs> entirely excited about it. And outside of the shop, uh, I guess not outside, that implies it's inside. We're on the streets. But uh, beside it, a fight breaks out. Um, and Varinus goes to break it up. But the rapscallions do not respect his authority or former position. Yes, BP. I'm kind of thinking about this now where you talked about how whatever uh, Varinus does, Polo does. Do you think this is kind of a parallel to Cato and Scipio's relationship? Like where it's Scipio is just kind of doing whatever Cato does. Now, and I don't know like how exactly to 100% parallel, but I'm kind of seeing, I kind of felt a parallel there by the way you're describing it. If so, I would I would say it's incidental just because Cato and Scipio, you know, they are important characters, but they're not so major like this. This moment they share just more so it is it's a powerful moment because it is their demise, but it also signifies really the end of the war in earnest. And we we really only learned of that dynamic between the two where Scipio follows what Cato does uh, here in this episode, I feel. So I think it's incidental, if anything, but maybe there's something to it. I would say that Varinus and Polo's relationship is more similar to like a a watered down version of Caesar and Antony's relationship. That yeah, makes sense. Actually, yeah, that makes sense. I could see that. 
but yes, these rapscallions do not respect Varinus's authority or former position. Uh, he's like, you will leave, blah, blah, blah. That is my order. And they're like, orders? Orders? You're not a soldier now. You're a shopkeeper's clerk. I censored myself there that time. Pat on the back. <laughs> uh, and as Varinus turns to leave, they spit on his neck. Varinus slaps the man. Uh, the man does not like this. He leaves by saying, both of you dead. Lydie informs Varinus he shouldn't have done that or said that. Those are Erastes Fulman's people. And if we recall, Erastes Fulman is a character we've met. He was formerly Varinus's friend uh, who employed him as a loan shark. And um, as we cut to Varinus's home, uh, we learn that this man is now to be feared. At home, Niobe tells Varinus how he's a big man now and now that Pompey's not around. He kills whoever he wants, really. And then there is a foreboding knock at the door. But good good news. It is the peasant that Arashti's men were assaulting. And he is thanking Varinus, presenting him with bread. I want to say that I loved this little exchange about, like, the dude. Because I'm pretty sure, like, he was a baker. So he, like, made, like, some mm-hmm. of his bread, like, for Varinus. And it's just, this shows, like, a Varinus getting, like, a reward for, like, being a good person. Which I feel like isn't something we've seen a whole lot of thus far he's just kind of been a good we, person and then it's just been happening but this is like a like a concrete like you're a good person thank you for that it does feel like the first eight episodes were all here's Verenus and his many many misfortunes and it is it's a this is a nice episode where Verenus just gets w's so uh bp did i cover what you were gonna say no, I was actually low-key very nervous that this would be the moment that they would show up at his doorstep because I in oh, yeah. all, all other forms of film and television, this is what happens. So a nice subversion of the expectations. Mm-hmm. Next, we are at the home of Servilia, um, our favorite young lesbian couple. Well, I don't know how young Servilia is. I don't know why I said that. Servilia and Octavia are weaving. Um, Octavia comments that she hopes that dinner that uh, they both attended at Antia's wasn't too painful for her. Servilia says it was not. Um, Octavia is, uh, she's concerned for Servilia. She comments that she wishes Servilia didn't care for Caesar so much. Uh, cutely, Servilia responds that she wishes she didn't care for her, Octavia, so much. And they, they share this small pack. It's a cute moment. Wow, what a lovely couple. Um, Servilia then comments on Octavian's growing up and how Caesar has taken to him. Um, and we kind of uh, remark upon the old rumor or Octavia remarks in this old rumor of Caesar taking another kind of fondness for Octavian in the cupboard oh so long ago. Octavia remarks uh, in this that Octavian mentioned a terrible affliction that Caesar had, and Servilia's attention and ears immediately perk up. Uh, Servilia demands that Octavia figures out what that affliction is, that this is her chance and weapon to bring Caesar down. Yes, BP. All I got to say for this scene so far is just ugh, poor Octavia once again, because we'll, we'll be hitting that note many times this episode. Yes, but this uh, this pretty much 100 percent solidifies like we've all been theorizing and basically saying it's implied that Servilia is using Octavia to take down Adia and, th- and now Caesar and things like that. But now it's like basically like 
Servilia's not even really hiding anymore. She is not doing it that I anymore. Don't, I don't know. I, I think I disagree. I think there is a very genuine connection between the two, which is like, I don't know, they've been together for over a year now, uh, essentially. And uh, it just so happens that Servilia's angry feelings towards Caesar um, and Octavia is close to the situation because she is family. Go ahead, Cole. I kind of agree with you on that. Like, I think that there's some element of like manipulation here, but she like says in the scene, like I've been like not honest with you. I haven't like it. Yeah. Lied to you or anything. So I think that's a pretty clear indicator for that. There's also a line. I don't know if we've quite gotten there yet, but I, I want to say it now just in case. So I asked it that Maria says where she's, talking about caesar and it's like a uh he still has a whole like has like taken hold of me i forget the exact phrasing no yeah it's, I, it's like, the sinkhole yeah i don't think uh, there's it's not that i don't think that there's any genuineness to the relationship it's just like i feel like this scene kind of solidifies some of servilia's motivations a little more clearly in how she wants to use this relationship Sure. Phoebe, would you like to continue interrupting me in the middle of my point, or was ooh, that are you ooh. good now? Toxic. Uh, Cole, I'm not gonna lie. Zoom is already uh, fighting you on that, but <laughs> uh, my point about the Caesar like has taken hold of me still. I wasn't a big fan of it. Her like phrasing it like that implies that this is like something Caesar is like choosing to do. It's entirely mm-hmm. like her like not being able to let go of him, but she's phrasing it as if like he's the one like in the wrong like by like holding this over her Mm -hmm. i i will state my point very simply i agree with bp i respectfully disagree with cole and jacob i think that in this scene servilia shows her true colors and this relationship and investment with octavia while it did not start necessarily in a place of utter manipulation she is um uh she is putting up a lot of uh, red flags uh, in modern parlance in this relationship. She is like pressuring her partner to do something like on the basis of this. It's like, you know, manipulate those around you to make uh, to make me Servilia happy. She she says it would make me happy if you did this. And so she is weaponizing her relationship with Octavia um, to get what she wants. That is my opinion. We'll finish this scene at hand. Um, Because there is this uh, heated exchange. uh, So, you know, Octavia, or not Octavia, Servilia is like, this is my chance to bring Caesar town. Octavia's like, please don't talk this way. Uh, Servilia, would you rather I lie to you? I would rather you talk of something rather than the destruction of my uncle. But Octavia eventually relents that she will try if it makes Servilia happy, as we discussed. So we cut to the home of the Julii, um, Octavia enters uh, what I believe is Octavian's bedroom or study or just a room. I don't know. Octavian's reading. Um, He states it's preparation for his new job of pontiff. Octavia states that she's bored and Octavian offers to read to her. Uh, We cut outside with this. This scenery is really, really gorgeous. Like the set here. I was like, Mm -hmm. whoa. Oh, my gosh. Like a romantic getaway. (laughs) (laughs) Foreshadowing. Uh, Octavian uh, does read aloud the poetry, but eventually Octavia grows tired of this as well and asks Octavian to tell her a secret. Octavian states he doesn't have one, so Octavia presses upon the the, what she really wants to get to, the affliction. Uh, Octavian goes on to say, oh, I was making it up. Octavian remarks, oh, you were lovers then? Uh, Octavian says, no, no, of course not. Either... 
that Octavia, either you were lovers or some god has cursed Caesar. Which is it? Uh, Octavian then goes on into this small diatribe about how uh, he doesn't reckon there are gods. There's probably some grand mover, but a group of people much like us interfering with our lives. And Octavia interprets this as Octavian not trusting her. Go ahead, BP. This is definitely going to be a bite my words moment, given what happens later in this episode. Uh, I wrote at, this as a note, not knowing what was coming next. Uh, I missed the dy- the brother-sister dynamic between Octavia <laughs> and Octavia. I... And I God. am going to definitely Listen. bite the way I wrote that before our, the end of this episode. <laughs> we will get to that moment. We'll talk I... about it. But I think that dynamic is maintained. Maybe that's an unpopular opinion, but... <laughs> I okay okay so this I mean we're getting ahead of ourselves I've seen it before yeah. like um but see I didn't get a brother sister vibe from it at all maybe I did the first time I watched it but like at least with this viewing it's like with utter clarity to me like Octavia speaks to Octavian with such an utter agenda um that I I don't see that brotherly sisterly affection and heck I don't even know in this whole series if they've really ever carried a conversation before where there wasn't another person present and so but they seem um, loving and genuine in those moments I would say yeah yeah I mean there was that time where Adia walked in and he was painting her nails yeah that's true that's That's a very intimate thing I forgot about that moment um so Octavian states, or, or so, yes, uh, Octavia is like, oh, so you do not trust me, brother Octavian? Octavian states that, of course I do, Octavia. You are my dearest friend. Of course um, I trust you, but I wonder why you care so much. And uh, Octavia says that she simply thinks it would be an exciting thing to hear. And now she doubts that Octavian has any exciting secrets at all. And Octavian does relent that he does, in fact, have um, a gruesome secret. Um, and he spills the details on how he tortured and murdered or helped torture and murder Evander Polkio. We cut to Verena's square. Irene is bathing a naked polo. Verena and Niobe are fiddling with an abacus. And then there is a commotion. Men are running. Noises are heard. Erastes Fulman marches in yelling for Verenus. He is um, not pleased. Uh, and he, in this conversation with Arenas, he comments how there are different rules now that you are back in Rome. You're not a soldier anymore. I, Erastes Fulman, am allowed to chastise my people, but regular citizens like you are not allowed to touch them. Cole, I hope you're not stealing my thunder and my favorite part or my funniest part, but go ahead. Uh, well, <laughs> but steal uh, my funniest part of the episode uh, <laughs> is uh, Polo here naked. Oh, okay. That's not my funniest part. Okay, Perfect. excellent. Excellent. But uh, Polo here is uh, naked, uh, getting bathed by Irini. And then he just like puts like a towel on, basically. And he's just like standing there with a towel the whole time, just ready to start killing people. Like he doesn't care that he's like, that everything's just hanging out. He's ready to go at all times. And I, I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. And uh, in the middle of that sentence by Rastis Fullman, uh, only, only he says, "Only I am allowed to touch my people. Only my I am allowed to chastise them." He breaks a large ceramic pot over the head of one of his servants. <laughs> it is brutal, but it is funny. <laughs> um, There's a there was a conch sound effect in graphic that appeared above him. <laughs> um, Arastes announces aloud to all the people in Verena's Square that. Next, uh, 
day at noon, Varinus will meet him in the forum and kiss his feet and apologize. If not, I, Erastes Fullman, will kill you, Varinus, but first you will see your wife and daughters raped. Polo goes to attack Erastes, of course, and Varinus tells him to hold and tells Erastes to leave. I couldn't tell if uh, Erastes Fullman has, uh, if you need to censor this, okay, balls of steel, or he's just stupid, because like it seems like when even when he looked over, he didn't react in any way as if he realized, like, Polo was stepping up to kill him and had the knife out. Like, if Varinus hadn't stopped him, he would be dead, and it just... Seemed like he didn't understand that, or he was just like, yeah, whatever, I don't care. I bet that's I, just like, he has a new huge stature in Rome, or like, you know, he is head honcho, and there are no repercussions for him, so he's like, he's probably like, yeah, my servants will take care of it, no biggie. Okay. Be pizzle. Uh, I wrote that, that uh, Erastes, is that how you say it? Yeah. yeah. Erastes has a god complex. That's kind of where my head was at in terms of how I was viewing him as a character because I was like, man, this guy just thinks he is all there. He is selfish. Jacob, sure. just to make that make more sense to you, like he's saying that he's like Kanye West. Um, <laughs> I get it now. Oh, it don't make sense. <laughs> oh, wow. We are now at the home of Servilia. Um, Octavia delivers to her the only secret that she was able to receive, and Servilia is, of course, disappointed. This has nothing to do with Caesar's affliction. It has something to do with some random man she has never heard of nor met. She demands, Servilia demands, that Octavia goes back to ask again. Octavia's like, how? What, what, what do you want me to do? What else? What? And Servilia suggests that Octavia promise Octavian something, saying, you do have something he wants. What do you mean? A young man will tell his lover anything. You can't be serious. I would be betraying my brother, my family. Your family is a nest of snakes. They are my family. They love me as I love you. You call this love? I can't do this. Cole. So a couple things. I feel like this scene uh, makes me way more inclined to agree with uh, BP and Kay's interpretation because there there can't be genuine romantic feelings from someone who's saying, what if you sleep with your little brother? And also, I find it kind of weird that at no point in her like disagreeing with this, that Octavia doesn't actually say that's incest. Like, what is wrong? Like, that that doesn't factor. She's like, I, it'd be like be betraying my brother by like, it seemed like the betrayal thing was more about like the secrets that she'd be sharing and she's like i love it It wasn't just like incest is wrong why are you telling me to do that well i mean i mean it's a different time right we do have to take in the cultural aspect of things obviously incest was kind of frowned upon but not to the extent that we are used to in our our modern day and age i I, jacob i will say brother and sister in rome is is the extreme yeah they obviously did not like that but you know cousins all the time were married yeah yeah but i'm pretty sure like in a like later on in the episode, Octavian mentions that like that's like uh, not great. It is at the very least perverted, as another character will learn says. Yeah. Um. So to break it down, if you couldn't surmise from what we were talking about, Servilia suggests to Octavia that she sleep and seduce with uh, her brother Octavian. Um. Octavia does not want to do this and goes to leave. 
But Servilia reveals a long-held secret that apparently she has had this whole time, uh, that Atia had her husband, Glavius, remember Glavius, uh, died in episode two, three, uh, killed. Like that, yeah. Um, she closes the distance to Octavia, puts her hand to her face, and Octavia looks at her incredulously. Just a quick temp check, guys. When you watched this scene, like, did you think that it was going to happen? Just a simple, um, did you lean it was more likely, less likely? I didn't think Servilia would be the one to tell Octavia. I thought Octavian was going to be the one to do it eventually. But looking in the context of this episode and where Servilia wants to take... BP, let me, let me clarify really quick. Um, my question is, did you think that Servilia's suggestion would come to fruition when this scene occurred? Oh, no. <laughs> okay. And, and I, I think I thought similarly, but not on the behalf of Octavia. Like I, she has proved that she was, she's kind of loyal and obedient to Servilia. Like she loves her or something probably. Uh, but I thought that Octavian would not um, ever consider doing it. Okay, cool. I was kind of figuring it would happen with my previous experience with HBO shows. I knew this was a <laughs> not out of the realm of possibility. And also like with what Jacob said with the, Octavia being loyal to Servilia, but I was thinking like Octavian might go for it because I felt like it might have just been me. I felt like this entire episode he's kind of been eyeballing Octavia. Well, they definitely do establish that, and I mean, because like there's the the glances at the um, Caesar's party, and I mean, have we not this whole series kind of been making tongue in cheek jokes about the weird creepiness of Octavian snooping around his own house, looking at his mother emerging from the bath, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I could actually see a fair amount of foreshadowing that would suggest that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's all there. I, it's all there. I, I I'm starting to, I kind of wish I saw the signs more coming with that. Now signs, that I'm thinking about signs, it. Everywhere the signs. Um, this scene I wanted to read like a play, the one that we just read, but I ran out of time to write it out like that for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but that's fine. So I did it myself instead. We cut to the forum. Erastes and his men are here. They are scanning the bystanders looking for Varinus. Varinus and Niobe are at home. They're sending the kids off with Lydie into the country. She instructs them to stay in the country and not, uh, she being Niobe, uh, in the country and not come back if her and Varinus are killed. Lighty asks Niobe to beg Verenus to do as Erastes asks. Um, it will not happen. That's a no-go. Non-sequitur. Is that how I use that word? Forget about it. Uh, Verenus says his goodbyes to his children as they pray. Verenus uh, instead begs Niobe to go with them, the children and the rest of his family, but she refuses. Her place is here with her husband. Noon passes at the forum. The time has passed. The mob leaves. Varinus and Niobe wait outside their home in Varinus Square for the inevitable. Daggers lie in front of them on the table. Table Pillow is uh, in the background sharpening blades. Um, eventually, Pillow comes to the table, um, is eating a piece of bread. Niobe says, she bought the better kind. Hang the expense, eh? 
Niobe and Verena share one last, uh, last question mark in passion kiss. The mob of Erastes men loudly march into the square and they announce their presence, except the announcement is for one Gaius Julius Caesar. And uh, he says, he says like one line, like it's probably just like Varinus. I can't remember. But then we see Erastes and his men marching into the same place, but they cannot enter because the Roman infantry is there blocking their path. Erastes hangs his head momentarily and turns into the Varinus home. Caesar is speaking with Varinus, telling him he has always held him in high regard, highly respected around these parts. He asks Varinus to serve as magistrate of Lower Aventine. Varinus is honored. He is deeply honored, but he must respectfully decline. Caesar questions him, so you still do not approve of my actions? Your politics are not mine. Were I a magistrate, I would have to speak, Varinus says. Caesar... And were you a magistrate, you would not speak in favor of a tyrant? I will not speak against my beliefs. And then Caesar goes on to state how Varinus misjudges Caesar. Caesar describes how soon enough he will return the powers to the people and step down from the dictatorship. And again, ask Varinus to join him. Varinus looks over his shoulder to Niobe ponders deeply for a moment and we cut to the balcony it is empty but out walks caesar and varinus and caesar hoists varinus's hand triumphantly into the sky and the crowd cheers they they're exuberant they love it uh niobe looks on lovingly and pillow down in the crowd looks upon sadly and leaves the crowd at, at the start of the scene, worth mentioning, Caesar in in uh, Varinus's household, uh, he says that Niobe is beautiful. She looks bashful, and then starts prostrating at his feet, and and that's just the Caesar effect, baby. Um, continue, <laughs> Jacob, as you will. Hey, yo. We cut to the Julii house. Um, Octavia looks upon her mother with this newfound information that she had her husband killed. Her servants are dressing her. We cut to Octavian writing. Octavia again enters. Octavia sends away the servant that is present. Uh, she, of course, wants a private conversation with Octavian. Uh, for what that might be is yet to be discovered. Is this to discuss the, the how Atia murdered Glabius, or is it to coax out more information? Octavia lies down on the bed. She asks Octavian to lie down with her. He asks why. She says because she would like it. He again asks why. Octavia asks why not. Octavian responds, several reasons. Um, Octavia goes on to say, when you were younger, you would come to my bed every night. Only when I was scared. You were scared a good deal. I'm not scared now. Octavian closes the distance, and Octavia tells him to pretend. He says he is no good at pretending. Octavia sits up, saying that she is embarrassed now. I thought that you wanted me. And uh, she also says, you're a man now, aren't you? You can take what you want as she reaches out and grabs Octavian's hand. She pulls him in. They kiss. The kiss does break for a mere moment as they look into each other's eyes, both looking unsure of themselves. And they continue. They lie down. Octavia removes Octavian's shirt and kisses down his body. And Octavian looks only upward, um, outwardly not reveling in any of this. Afterwards, uh, they lie in bed. 
Octavia says, brother, tell me something. Octavian, ah, what do you mean, ah? Now comes the price. Uh, blah, 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 blah. You're a virtuous woman, so you must know that seducing your own brother is wrong. And then Octavian waxes poetic. He is deeply educated, as we know, and he loves his philosophy and his poetry on why incest is wrong. Um, and either way, we get to the point that Octavian, obviously, from the beginning, has seen through all of this and points out that he soon expects Octavia will now renew her interest in the affliction of Caesar. And uh, uh, Octavia weeps. Um, she, of course, has been seen through, and what she has done is vile and despicable. It is only slightly of her doing as she's being manipulated by many parties. But uh, she regrets deeply what she has done and, and cries. And in what I, I – maybe I am the outlier here. And what I thought was actually a very sweet moment, um, Octavian, in all his wisdom, goes to comfort his sister and, and asks, what have you done? Tell me. And uh, Octavia says, promise you won't tell mother. And the scene ends there. Um, I'll just pause. Any comments about this incestuous scene, BP? I wrote as a first note, what WTF is going on? <laughs> uh, also, I I was I'm curious about this because I just could I might, might have missed it if it's someone we knew or whoever who was watching them. A slave. It was the one of Addie's slaves. Yeah, I think it's like Addie is like main like slave lady. Gotcha. Oh, I didn't realize someone was watching them. Is this how Addie learns of it? Probably. Yes. Okay, this is good to know. Um, we cut very briefly to the Verenus household. Verenus is being dressed in fine robes. After all, he is um something. I've forgotten the title. Magistrate. He's a magistrate now. Um, he looks nice. Running. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, he looks nice. Polo says he looks like laundry. And um, <laughs> as Verena admires himself in the mirror, Polo looks on again solemnly. Yes, Kay. Well, I mean, like, uh, oh, I thought you were going to mention you're like, Polo, you know, he's going to touch the laundry man. Um, and Niobe says, don't touch it. You're going to make it dirty. And then Polo has uh, mm. his look. Yes. Uh, that scene is brief. We cut back to the Julii house. Atia has learned of certain events that have happened in her household. Uh, she is yelling and chasing Octavia. Um, I noted that it would appear Octavian told her, but uh, it, I'm happy to learn that a slave probably did because it renews my faith in the young man. Um, Octavian stops her um, as she goes to hit him, Octavian. Um, and he says, I am your son, but not your child. You will not strike me anymore. Uh, she questions this and punches him in the face uh, and excuse Atia's language, but you your sister, you little pervert. Don't tell me what I will and will not do. And, and, and I am now brave enough to say Atia is, I love her. <laughs> Octavia reaches for the whip that is on the ground and brandishes it at Atia, telling her to be quiet. Atia says, you wouldn't dare. And Atia has Octavia pegged. Um, Octavia drops it and breaks down crying. Atia laments, how could you do this to me? And uh, Octavia confronts her on lying about killing Glabius. And Atia keeps about her lying business. And I cannot believe it, but Octavia still does not see through it. She is still all mixed up in this, and, and maybe for good reason, um, because Servilia is using her as well. Um, but uh, Atia states that Servilia is the liar. She did it to turn Octavia against Atia. And then Atia comforts Octavia. Go ahead, Cole. 
I just want to say I was so bummed out that like oh, a, yeah. she, uh, Adia punched Octavian in the face. He went down and he like looked simultaneously chastised somewhat and also like angry. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Octavia like holding the whip. And I was like, come on, God, one, of uh... you, one of you do something. I, I'll give that in this particular scene, Adia is more in the right. But I was like, I just one of you to stand up to this woman, do something to her. And I don't and, know. I still, I, I don't, I think, I don't think anyone is more in the right than anyone else here. I, I don't think any of the, the, I think the action that begets more violence is Atia's murdering of Glabius. So I, I say uh, Octavian and Octavia have at her, but that's just me. I guess less so that she's more in the right and more that. Her like disgust and anger in this scenario is justified, but I still yes. wanted one of them to do something. Okay, um, we are to our penultimate scene now. We are outside Verenus's house. It is the Inverenus Square, as I've dubbed it. It is the still of the night. Polo enters. He seems mildly drunk. He sits down and he shouts out to Irene. Irene appears and comes down the stairs and sits down with him, and Polo insists that she have a drink with him. Um, Irene looks nervous, uh, but accepts the drink, and, and Polo begins to, to speak of his mother. Um, he comments that Irene had hair like hers, but his mother had gray eyes, though. She was a slave, but she smelled of pine trees, probably worked up north in the forest. Um, go ahead, Cole. Freudian, that's all. Yes, yes. Um, Irene must deeply calm our friend Polo because we get the sense he has not spoken much of any of this to anyone before. Um, He continues to speak about his other uh, parent, his father. He says uh, he doesn't know who his father was, probably another slave. And he gets angry at this, uh, stating he lived as a slave because he was too timid to, to die in war or kill himself. And Polo yells out that he would never lie down to another man. He would rather cut out his own heart and eat it. This moment, uh, he's making a lot of ruckus. Uh, a woman yells out to him to, to quiet down. And he, among other things, yells out that he is Titus Polo, right? Sitting down now to Irene, right? To which Irene responds, yes, master. Polo remarks that Irene is good, but she doesn't smile much. Irene asks if he wants her to smile, and Polo says, I want you to be happy. And this actually does put a smile on Irene's face. Um, Polo tells her to have another drink of wine and has Irene come around the table. She stands before him. He tells her to come closer. He tells her to take off her dress. Polo puts his hand out to his face and brings it down to her hand. And uh, he brings her hand to him again and starts kissing her neck and moves downward. Um, we, we stay locked on Irene's face, who unfortunately again uh, returns to her unenthused look. This scene, like as much as like uh, I was kind of uncomfy with the, the ending, just because like it, of Irene not being into it. Like, I really like this scene for Polo. Like, it just, like, it kind of solidified for me. It's like, Polo just, like, 
he wants someone to love and he wants someone to love him. And like just that that line where she's like, Do you want me to smile more? And he's like, I want you to be happy. It's like, ugh. He just wants someone to care about. It is it is such a deeply complicated moment because uh Irene is dealing with the power dynamics of seeing Polo as her master. And and from all we can surmise, probably does not feel a romantic affection towards Polo. And um, or maybe she does, but uh, is doesn't know it yet. I, I don't know. It's hard to say. But uh, then and then Polo, you know, we, we saw a lot of growth from Polo is like, blah, blah, blah. She makes me feel calm. Um, I haven't even touched her yet. And I don't know. It almost feels like a, a corruption of that because now we know that Polo has touched her and it is. And, and it wasn't in the the most consensual way to say it Ex- like that exactly but yes jacob you said that really well like a corruption and it's almost like i kind of thought of the scene like as a relapse for polo because he's he's drunk in verena's square in uh, around verena's vicinity mm-hmm. and he's like he's waxing about the woes of his own life but uh, he's got the drink in him and he's like maybe returning back to those old ways ultimately you know no longer taking yeah. that water and and perhaps this is a good moment to sit and actually talk about Polo over the course of this episode because we see him a lot but he is in the background and he is there with Varinus and um kind of observing the good things happening in Varinus's life but these good things are not shared by Polo um, and he sees this man who he uh, considers a friend, um, his stature and his notoriety rising, and and, and nothing is happening for Polo. And um, does does Polo want to move up in the ranks? Probably not, but perhaps there is a sense that his his friend and the person who is closest to him is moving further away from him. Uh, with this this new position, and we know of this kind of classist divide that exists in Roman culture, mm-hmm. so um, he is he's deeply troubled. Jacob, like what you you I think you made a better point than I had written in my notes. Like I kind of targeted Polo's behavior this episode as like a growing disgust, specifically with Niobe and not feeling uh, left behind and uh, not sharing in the spoils of Renus's life. But particularly, I feel like Polo makes many glances towards Niobe. Um, he notices. Um, uh, what Niobe does anytime that she orders Irini around, um, mm. he definitely is, you know, subtly affronted that she doesn't want Polo to Polo to even touch Verenus's toga. Like and Verena, uh, like he has been in the trenches with Verenus. He is hiding mm. weapons for him. He has been ride or die for Verenus for years at this point. Niobe, on the other hand, has become very accustomed to the wealth and status she has earned, but Polo is reminded of his enslaved mother the way that he orders Irini around mm-hmm. so it's like it's after polo has done so much for her um he's he is overlooked and not appreciated by her that is how i took that this episode but i do see how that can fold into the greater idea of polo feeling left behind the successes of others mm-hmm. cool i kind of had a point that it feels kind of like a mixture of the two but like my view of it it felt like all of Polo's glances were occurring like when like Varinus and Naobi were having like a, a touching moment. So I, I kind of took it as like a, he feels like some jealousy that like, Oh, like this is mm. like a, there's a happiness like to this relationship and he doesn't have that. And it's yeah. like bad about it. And I think that might be like oh. a lot of what like stems from this, like, like this like <sighs> drunken, like spiel he goes on, I think 
comes from a lot of that. I like that. I like that a lot because that really impresses upon the fact that, yeah, he sees the happy Niobe and Varinus, and while he has a he is affectionate towards, they do not share that happiness. And we see him, we hear him say, I want you to be happy, Irene. And so, I mean, it's, it's art is subjective. It's probably a little bit of all of this. Maybe the director's intended to be one of these things more than the other, but, um, I, that was a, a man, some great, you, some great diving into the subject matter, gentlemen. Do you think that there's part of him that like when he sees Irene throughout this episode, do you ever think like in the back of his brain, there's some form of guilt with him for having, uh, sex with Cleopatra in the previous episode? No, probably um, not. I don't think so. It, you know, it, it didn't manifest this episode, BP. Maybe it will in the future, but yeah, I, I totally forgot about that till he said that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we will move to our final scene. We are um, around the forum. We're in the streets of Rome. Servants are working on statues, chiseling. Uh, we do recognize Timon amongst the, the group. Um, Servilia is being carried in one of those carriages. I can't remember the name of them. When suddenly um, her her men are calling for people to move out of the way and suddenly men jump out from under sheets and just from the streets and assassinate her servants carrying this uh, carriage of sorts. And she tumbles out. The uh, assassins, uh, they take hold of Servilia as people look uh, scared onward. Her hair is cut by a masked man. She is stripped naked. Uh, meanwhile, Servilia is praying to the gods. The men eventually leave her there, uh, and Servilia lies in a heap on the dirty streets of Rome as we fade to black and credits roll for episode nine, Utica. And if I remember correctly, Jacob was actually, I don't like uh, the last thing before the fades of black was actually a look of disgust on Timmons face, or at least that's what I had mm -hmm. predicted there. That's what I had as well. And I find it very, very interesting that I think it's very pur purposeful that Timmons there, because otherwise we would guess that this is the doing of Atia, right? Because there's this back and forth and like Atia is lying about killing Glabius again. And this feels like the logical next step in their kind of bickering but uh by seeing that timon is there and kind of unaware of the whole thing i i, I think it shows that this isn't Atia's doing oh really no I... jacob i took this the the opposite way like um... really? yeah i okay. like timon being there like was to remind us that he's Atia's man so that like mm -hmm. when this happens like oh like it uh, connects it to it being an Atia thing but but he is still he's surprised in himself of how disgusted he is by the outcome nonetheless i see it as that Atia ordered Timon and his posse to do this act, but I think Timon is kind of like af in that moment. I think Timon realizes like how far this went and how mm. horrible it was. I think that it's very much like on paper he didn't really think that much of it, and then once it was actually executed, it really manifested him into him being disgusted by it well gentlemen um if there are no other comments I want to thank you for joining me in episode nine from the deaths of scipio and cato all the way to the loving incestuous relationship of octavian <laughs> oh and octavia <laughs> it was a trip it i wrote so many words about it so mm -hmm. thank you and jacob i must commend you again like you know i said as as close as you reasonably can to um you know, getting hot off the episode to jumping on Zoom would be great. And Jacob took that quite literally. So I applaud you for that, my friend. Mm -hmm. um, 
as far as episodes as a whole um, or on the whole episode goes, guys, um, I'll I'll just like try to say this piece briefly and I'll rant later on. I find this episode to be a, a black hole of morality where previously moral or semi-moral characters are debased. Uh, Niobe mistreats Polo in my analysis earlier. Um, Polo uh, does not treat Irini well. Uh, not consensually has sex with her, in my opinion. Servilia corrupts Octavia. Octavia is convinced to seduce Octavian and follows through with that. And Octavian allows that to happen, does so willingly knowing there's an ulterior motive. And all these, you know, every character in Rome has several shades of gray, but this like puts such a dark spot upon all of them, in my opinion. And it's interesting from a, a storytelling perspective and uh, amping up the relations between characters and what could happen and what we think of them. But it, I, this episode is personally hard for me to watch, frankly. While I say earlier in this episode, I hate Adia, I will say it's kind of a weird flip where the, this is the one episode where she had at least in one scene, the right moral compass of being upset with what happened between Octavia and Octavian. I. That's not my general thoughts. That was just a response to. No. Hayes. Yeah. I, yeah. I really liked this episode. Yeah. Um, I thought it was quite good. And I thought it was like the culmination of a lot of things that have just been built up and hinted to like the death of Glabius and um, the revealing of this secret uh, to Servilia that Niobe's um, bastard child. Um, and I, I feel like that will resurface as well. And it, 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 a lot of really good characters were debased morally, um, but I kind of, liked that as a statement on how this fight for power corrupts everyone that comes in contact with it right uh, is this is a political game and everyone involved is is left stained and darker because of it right caesar wrongs servilia and servilia can't let go of that so she manipulates and darkens the pure heart that is octavia who is already being manipulated and darkened by her power hungry mother who is also grasping for political power and i'll if I may, well, no, I don't want to go into my favorite moment right now. It, it just goes in, it fits well into that. But I I like it for that. And there's just like a lot of little complicated character moments like we talked about with, with Polo and even world building stuff. Like um, in, the, in the scene where Octavia sends away the servant, um, Octavian's like, why'd you do that? And I was like, oh, I, I don't like him. He looks upon me. Um, and Octavian's like, oh, you should have Castor whip him or beat him, right? And Castor was the servant who got beat and was whipped like yeah. in the first or second episode. And so I thought either that was cool that Castor's moved up in the ranks or ironic that he is the one now um, whipping others. So I don't know. There was a lot I liked about it even amidst the darkness and i admittedly i'm someone who tends to like i really really like sad endings of things and sad moments and so um i i enjoyed this episode thoroughly jacob your point about the political game corrupting people um that was really well said i i appreciate mm -hmm. that uh cole did you have final thoughts to share 
Uh, I don't think I can really add anything. Uh, my thoughts are pretty in line with Jacob's, and I think he said it uh, a lot more eloquently than I would have. So I will just two weeks in a row, baby. I'm just, yeah. I'm just your your mouth. <laughs> we we share one brain. <laughs> okay. Great minds think alike. Okay, guys. Uh, anything else worth saying? I didn't get to fully share my final thoughts on this oh, okay. episode, but uh, if I. If I had to describe an episode with one word this week, it would be dominoes. And the reason I'm saying that is because it's kind of what Jacob was talking about, and I won't go into as much detail, but the political game and things like that, it is a domino effect on every single character, for better or for worse. And we are definitely now seeing the consequences of this game. And there's three episodes left in the season. I uh, know that this show was canceled and I do so wish that there were more seasons of this. Cause I wanted to see like more of this Roman history of like how the pol- political games were working. Wait, hold and- on BP. Just checking really quick. Yes. The show was canceled after season two. Yes. Okay. Okay. Just checking. But this episode is intriguing. Is intriguing to make me say, I wish they didn't cancel this after a second season. Okay. Okay. And I don't love this episode. I think it's good, but I think that there is a lot to it. Okay. Um, BP, your point about dominoes. Well said. Yes. Um, agree. Okay, folks. So now Cole and BP are going to go out to the breakout room. There are three episodes left this season. Uh, Pick two characters who you think will not make it to season two. So, Jacob, in terms of historiosity this episode, um, I I wrote down only one really historical thing, um, which was the death of Cato, and everything else yeah. after this was just a, a flavor text. Yeah, and I was, I was kind of too absorbed in note-taking to really think about any historical stuff too terribly much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was very excited to see that they dealt with, I think I talked about this in the episode already that they, how they dealt with Cato's death, yeah. uh, which is mostly true to how it happened. Wasn't he aboard a ship or something in my head? He was aboard a ship when it happened. Um, as I recall, Jacob, no, it was after the battle of Thapsus where he was defeated and uh, it, in the African provinces, he, mm. you know, he, he killed himself by impaling himself on his stomach and yeah, leaving mm-hmm. it at that. Um, but yeah, something that was not explicitly said was the fact that, um, you know, Cato was Brutus's uncle um, and was oh. Servilia's half brother. Uh, so, ah, yeah. Uh, the the thing about that Servilia so much where, drama to it. Wow. Yeah. So Servilia wearing the, the morning shawl. Um, I wondered if it was in specific reference to him and I, you know, I, I don't remember how much the show might bring that up or if it ever does bring that up, um, that, you know, Cato and Servilia had a familial re- relationship and therefore Brutus did as well. But it could influence actions oh. coming up. Yeah, that would have been really cool to know. Huh. Yeah. That's yeah. too bad. Jacob, the, the only other thing I guess we could really talk about here was um, the, the Octavian Octavia scene. And, and you know me that... I, t- true to life, like I, I am kind of an Augustus stan, not that I stand for his uh, politics or government what stood for, but he's just an endlessly fascinating person mm-hmm. that he just kept freaking winning. 
And I do wonder if it's that like fanboyism that's that makes me dislike this episode so much, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. But I feel like I feel like it is not just that for me personally. But but what did you think about this major developments in the Octavian Octavia relationship that is a historical? Yeah, uh, so or or in, I, I should say like, share as much as you can if you got you know more to say after we get back from here. Yeah, no, my thought is while I, I do like it in how the episode does it and how it hits on themes and things, I do, I don't know, from the standpoint of history and telling a story, I, I don't know. I, I don't really like it as a vehicle. Like, I, I'm not sure. It's just like probably doesn't actually happen at all in history and i feel like there are just other ways to to forward that storyline that they they could have utilized yeah and so while i like the execution of it and in the episode i like it from a historical perspective i'm like there's there's so much else you could do it's not like rome isn't ripe with drama yeah and things to pick from you don't need to manufacture this um this dramatic incestuous thing so yep. yeah i another thing i want to say as well it's not the fact that hbo's rome is not 100 percent faithful to history like it, it's a unreasonable to include the the whole cast of characters in a 12 episode oh, season yeah. that takes place like this season by the end will a decade will have passed i do believe so mm -hmm. that's a lot to fit in um whether they acknowledge that uh or not like anyways um so it the the historical departure does not necessarily upset me and rome has maybe one great example of changing history that is very effective in my opinion this uh, this did not uh suit me though um another example though of uh changing uh, the show changing history that i don't mind is uh quintus pompey who we haven't seen in a while but uh pompey yeah. magnus's son quintus who's wholly invented one we know in real history there's there's anias pompey who would probably yeah. have been an appropriate age to be pompey's right hand man there's a younger sextus pompey who uh, in the second triumvirate is a is a major player early on mm -hmm. there, but but sometimes you can't necessarily fit everything in there. Um, and, and Jacob, I'll take a sec to ask you this here. Uh, I appreciate the complimentariness you've had to DOTRR, um, and I wanted to ask you, like like I said, you know, maybe I'm kind of biased in telling the story of the death of the Roman Republic because again, I Augustus is endlessly fascinating but who is your favorite character um in in the death of the Roman republic or your favorite historical figure oh. i guess i know that's a very big question i've well i would probably just lean towards saying cleopatra and like how she like influenced so many different powerful people oh, okay yeah and so i don't know yeah cleopatra probably okay okay cool answer yeah mm-hmm all right. Well, I think that's hopefully enough time for them to talk about the deaths of two possible characters, whether that uh, occurs or not. We'll see. But um, thank you for this conversation, Jacob. Of course. Yes. Gents, you got back real quick there. Okay. So, uh, BP, I will ask you first two characters who you don't think are going to make it to season two. All righty. I believe that Julius Caesar is not going to make it past season one. And I'm also going to say Erastes does not make it past season one. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Deep cut. Deep cut. <laughs> All right, Cole, what about you, man? I said Julius Caesar, and 
I think Niobe's biting it before the season ends. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Things are going too well for them. Things are going too well for them. Okay. I don't know. Jacob, do you have any reactions to that? Possibly. Um, reactions uh, are. I think all could be possible. <laughs> Surreal, uh, like magic eight ball. You know, roll again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Response. Yeah. Okay. All right, guys. So we will get into favorite and least favorite moments of the episode. Um, you guys probably have surmised that I have a least favorite moment of the episode to share. Does put that together? Yeah. Does anyone else have a least favorite moment that they are going to share here? All right. Okay. So BP and I. Okay. Um, BP, do you want to go first? I'll let you go first. This is the episode that you were not the most positive leaning on, so I will let you get it all out. No, not at all. Um, my least favorite part is, of course, uh, Octavia and Octavian sleeping together, and that's Servelia convinced Octavia to do it, because while we know that Octavia is not a political mastermind, um, she is totally and utterly played in a way that insults her intelligence, in my opinion. She convinces herself that the best thing to do, the, the right thing to do, is to seduce her little brother. Um, reasons are given, and I guess, like, logically they make sense but like from an emotional like intelligence level that octavia i think has been displayed to have i don't understand how this is a justifiable choice in the writer's room um i understand like that octavia is something of an avatar of everything terrible that can happen to a woman in roman society from the very first episode that she is introduced i said that uh octavia's um uh, scene with Pompey where she is undressed. That is one of my two least favorite scenes in the show. And this is the other least favorite one. Um, and also the way that Octavia presents herself to Octavian, like bending over to look at the books and everything like that. that I, it's, I, I don't know if it's supposed to be funny or serious. I, I frankly find it revolting for some reason, and I don't understand why. And Octavian being a huge absolute sicko, not in a cool Mark Antony way, where I say that as a compliment, but to knowingly sleep with Octavia, despite thinking that she had an ulterior motive, I understand that he is a political robot who is cold, but to actually sleep with Octavia, who he says is his closest friend, um, is awful. And I don't think any of us were saying that Octavian was a moral person, but this is beyond the pale uh, to to uh, uh, quote Jerry from Succession. Um, and again, I don't know how from a storytelling perspective, this seemed like a good idea to pull the trigger on. I, I think, and Jacob, you had said this point, if you wanted to develop some issue between uh, Octavia and Adia, like her finding out the fate of Glabius or uh, how Servilia ultimately finds out information about Caesar's illness, there are other avenues that I would have exhausted to not go this direction. And several months from now, maybe a year from now, when we finish the entire series, um, I will explain in full detail why this scene and story beat makes this, in my opinion, the worst HBO series I've ever seen. Um, The first time I watched this, 
it it tainted the whole series for me. I watched the series the first time through a very critical and frustrated lens after this moment. It tainted my memory of the show. Watching the episodes before this, I was frankly surprised to find myself liking it and enjoying it as much as I did and wondering if when we arrived at this moment, if it would not make me writhe so badly, but seeing it again, I, I dislike it. I am pretty sure for the rest of the time I watch this show, episodes uh, 10, 11, season two, whatever, it is going to be tainted by this memory. And after we review this on DOTRR, guys, I doubt I will ever watch HBO's Rome again, unless it is with a loved one. And certainly I will be uh, skipping this scene. But I will say, while I hate this story beat, while I do hate this story beat and the direction the story went in Octavian and Octavia's relationship, I credit the production for planting the seeds here, because if you rewatch earlier episodes, you can reinterpret uh, glances uh, or, or kind of like how you can reinterpret glances between Servilia and Octavia before they kiss at, at that sexual tension. You could argue that some moments previous to this, there is sexual tension between Octavia and Octavian, particularly when she watches Octavian spol, uh, spar with Polo. She remarks there's more to being a man than penetration and they engage in that later. Uh, so it's set up. Adia encouraging Octavian to have, se to have sex when he wasn't interested. Had Adia never stroked this interest, perhaps Octavian would not have had sex with his sister. Adia created this monster in Octavian and created it in Octavia for manipulating her marriage to Glabius and later assassinating him. And my final point here is back in episode six, the prostitute that Octavian chooses, Egeria and the right lights, kind of looks like Octavia, in my opinion. That, that is a vibe that I picked up that maybe Octavian, well, no, I think that Octavian chose Egeria because she has a, she has a faint resemblance to his elder sister. And so while I dislike the story beat, the seeds were planted there at least. So thank you guys for uh, listening to this rant. My <laughs> least favorite moment will be a lot shorter. Um... Uh, I don't even think I can go into the depths that Kay went. That is up there in a least favorite scene of mine, but my least favorite scene is the ending and it is going to rant for a little bit. It's not that I think it's like a moment that I don't think fits in the context of the show. It is just very much how society as a whole does not do anything because all you hear in the background for like a split second when they start attacking Servilia, you just hear one person say someone help her and all you see are the people just standing to the side just like with their hands above their heads and things like that and are so just obviously they're disturbed by it and rightfully so they're disturbed by it but I it's my least favorite moment because I just it for how especially for an example how disgusted Timon looks you would think that he would have said cut this off or help Servilia once he's realizing that he's disgusted by this or anything like that I just don't like this and that might just be the modern society in me where I say we if that would be happening today somebody would should and would jump in to help out. I disagree. No one would help out in modern society. Bystander yeah. effect, man. Yeah, yeah I, I, I had a... BC? Well, at least I should. And I'm just very... I, I, it, it, that's just the disappointment in me where I'm just kind of like, God, this... I don't agree with what Servilia did in this episode by any stretch. 
by making Octavia seduce Octavian and things like that, but I don't think it needed to stoop to a low like that. Yeah. That is a, a fair and valid critique, but I am with Jacob on this, that bystander effect is real. Like, I believe people, like, wouldn't have done anything. And also, there's the fact that you can say, like, I have seen things, like, that have surprised me so much. I've been, like, kind of stunned into silence and don't know how to react. This would be, like, such a level beyond that that I could see, like, a valid, like, I I don't know what to do. Like, you're, you're just, like, so, like, like, shocked by this. You don't know what to do. And also, all those guys just killed all of her slaves. So maybe there's some worry of, if I step in, I will die, too. So not to justify mm-hmm. it, but, like, I think there can, like, there's a like a, a lens through which this can be viewed to like where there's logic behind not doing anything, I guess. That's, and that's fair to me. It just, it, in grand scheme of things, I just don't think this is the low it had to get stooped down to mm. more so than anything. All right, guys. So we will get into our favorite moments from this episode. Uh, I will share mine. It's a lot shorter than what I had previously said. Uh, Adia hits Octavian, calls him a pervert. My favorite part of the episode. Uh, who would like to share next? Uh, I'll go. Um, also, I'd like to say I feel bad for liking this episode now. Those were pretty convincing. <laughs> it, no, it's your opinion, dude. It's, it's um, your opinion. But, it's all right. Um, I do want to give an honorable mention to the beginning because I just I, I really love the depiction of Cato and Scipio's suicides. But and I, I feel like this is going to be a weird one. My favorite moment is after the incestuous scene where Octavian still goes to comfort his sister. Like, on one hand, he did it knowingly engage in this, like, terrible act, but he doesn't think any less of his sister really for doing so, it doesn't seem like, because he sees that she was manipulated, and he he's like, he wants to be there because he does truly consider Octavia his closest friend and like trusts her implicitly and so I I don't know I just thought after a whole bunch of really really terrible stuff was happening everywhere and people were doing bad things that they didn't want to do it was it felt to me like this kind of beacon of light of there is still goodness even despite what literally just happened that was horrible um octavian doesn't hold anything against his sister and uh, his sister immediately recognizes that she what she did was terribly wrong so that was my favorite moment well said jacob mine is the moment that caesar arrives at Venus's home because it's kind of another nice subversion of expectation where you think that it's going to be this fight between Verenus and Erastes, and mm. you think that it's just going to be like this. And I'll be a hundred percent honest. I don't know. I think Verenus probably would have survived the fight, but, and you could kind of see, see it as Caesar being a deus as ex machina, but I, I'll let you finish. But I just think like the fact that it's Caesar is just like Caesar for even though many people are just disagreeing with him staying in power and things like that. Caesar did come in clutch for Varinus without realizing <laughs> it. Yeah, I I actually genuinely thought Varinus was going to die um, because I mean, while they've had plot armor every time before there has never been a buildup like this to any action scene. It's just action happens and Venus and Polo survive it. And this like 
for a decent chunk of the episode it's like uh you know this thing is happening if you don't do it he's gonna kill you and we see a nervous arena sitting at a table with a bunch of daggers and knives uh, anxiously anticipating it and it's like oh my gosh is this are they actually gonna is he gonna die so. Jacob, you just reminded me, it's like, you know, they hear the marching, Varinus gets up, I think he's like dual-wielding gladii or something like that, yes. and it's like, it's Caesar marching through first, he's like, he so smoothly just like drops him down and bows or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's that why, nice. and that's why I bring up how like some people say Caesar's just a deus ex machina within that, because they all, they arrive, but they can't go in, because Caesar's there, and that turns, I'm blanking on his name all of a sudden, Erastes Erastes, thank you. Erastes can't go in, and that's kind. Of, and yet, like I said, can be a Deus Ex Machina. But at the same time, Caesar was just like, "Yeah, I, I saved your life without even realizing it or thinking I was gonna have to." But I just did. Cool. I will uh, share my favorite. I just want to say, I think I'm missing something from what BP said. Like it. You basically, like, even though like some people might look at it as a de deus ex machina, you didn't offer a counterpoint uh, from what I interpreted. You just said, because Caesar's like, yeah, I, I just said it. Like, you're just like saying like, yeah, he is, but, but you cool. like it, which is fine. Like, I'm not saying that's bad. I just like, it sounded like you were like getting a counterpoint ready, but then didn't offer one. The counterpoint is, is that, see, you could look at it through the lens that Caesar was just like, yeah, I just unintentionally saved your life. <laughs> Which never mind. I'll, I'll, sure. Yeah. Uh, my favorite moment was the reunion between Varinus and his family. Mm. I thought it was just like a, a super touching thing, especially as Kay mentioned, which I, I was bummed out about when he brought it up because I wanted to talk about it in this segment. That like in the the first episode where he returns, that like it's this like kind of, it's this cold thing where he sees Niobe holding baby Lucius. And he yells at her, and he she like takes him to the the house, and she's like, "Why, why would you like yell at me like and insult me like that in front of everyone?" And like the daughters are there, and they don't really know how to react to him. Like they're acting like they don't they don't know who he is. They don't. They, they don't. Of him. Yeah. So like it's just like very like awkward, and he doesn't know what to do. But this comes in. The daughters see him, and they're like so excited. They both run up and hug him, just like so happy to see him. He's himself is delighted he's smiling Naobi turns around and sees him and like kind of like starts like she gets like a tear in her eye runs up like that they're talking it's just like such a like an indicator of how much of like a changed man Varinus is now he's like a true family man and just like I just loved it it, it was such a cute moment I I enjoyed it this is the second time I'm pulling that George Lucas quote out but it's sort of like poetry it, it just rhymes <laughs> Uh, second time this episode. It's the third time you've used it in this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Cole's, right. Cole's got everything. Yeah, cool. I, I, think, trap. I think Cole is trying to create a BP podcast bingo. Honestly. <laughs> honestly <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> oh, my God. Take a shot every time. No. Um, okay. Uh, let's see, guys. Now, 
No quizzes this week, guys. We're doing something a little different here. We are three-fourths of the way through Season 1, so what I had my fellow hosts do was come up with a list of their top four favorite characters. They get one more choice compared to last time as far as their top four goes. Now, guys, we'll share our top fours. We'll talk about our top favorite one. Uh, and we also get to talk about some other aspect of our list. So, for example, guys, my previous list was Varinus and Mark Antony and Atia. If, for example, Atia dropped off my list, I might explain why Atia is no longer on my list. Um, so you get to describe your top character and some aspect of your list here. Like last time, gentlemen, we will go ahead and share who is our favorite characters. Just list them off. Then we'll get to sharing our reasons for our top character. Then we'll get to describing our lists. So I'll go ahead and start, guys. My top favorite character at the present is Mark Antony, followed by Caesar, Varinus, and Atia. Jake, would you mind sharing yours next? In no particular order, I would say mine are probably Octavian, Varinus, Julius Caesar, and Octavia. All right, Cole, hit me. Mine are Octavian, Varinus, Polo, and Pompey. All right, keep the name alive. BP. May rest in peace. <laughs> mine is Polo. Octavia, Varinus, and Octavian. All right, all right. Um, with this, guys, uh, we will go and share why our top character is our top character. There was a little overlap here, so we're going to get some more descriptions of characters. I'll go ahead and start this one, though. Mark Antony shot up to the top dog spot with his villains monologue oh, oh. to Cicero last week. Thank you, Jacob. Uh, I like Antony because he is a depraved sicko and revels in this. I contrast this with Octavian's depravity, who seems like he should be above it, and then he sleeps with Octavia. And and I know I'm a giant hypocrite and everything like that, but for me, there is um, a cognitive dissonance where I can really like Mark Antony and despise this current characterization of Octavian. I've said my piece. Uh, Jacob, would you mind hitting us next? My favorite character is one Gaius Julius Caesar. Um... In the beginning of the series, we didn't see a lot of human moments from Caesar. We saw the general uh, and we saw, you know, logic and contemplation and strategy. Um, but in uh, not so much this episode, but the previous two, we saw the human side of Caesar. And uh, it just it spoke to me as very powerful to see him as a man who uh, truly does care for Rome and cares about the people who were in Rome with him, living with him, his compatriots, um, but ended up being his enemies. He, he still cares for them because they are Romans, and he is happy to see them again, and he is sad to learn of their passing as well. And I think that's even slightly hinted upon – maybe it's me interpreting things, maybe it isn't. In this episode, when we see the depraved play uh, depicting Scipio's and Cato's death – Caesar does not look enthused. These were people who were senators, or Cato certainly was. I don't know about Scipio, but uh, they were the best of the best, and it's it saddens Caesar to see them gone, and I like the human side of Caesar. I think it's compelling. Cole, your favorite? My favorite was Octavian. Now, that might seem like kind of a hot take after this episode, but... I think uh, in some ways this episode kind of 
enhances it for me in a weird way. And I'll get probably the most like <laughs> weird. Uh, yeah, the the weirdest uh, thing I based on as I said earlier, uh, I think uh, Octavian was kind of like eyeballing Octavia throughout the episode. Like I think like there was like on his end, like there was an attraction there prior. So like there's kind of like a, a certain level of respect. Like he was aware that like there was a an ulterior motive. Like she wanted something out of this, but like he got what he wanted out of it, but didn't have to give up what she wanted. Like he offered, he did like, didn't offer the information she was after. So he kind of just like won out on that deal entirely as gross of a thing as it is. Like, there was a thing he wanted and he got it and he didn't have to give anything up for it aside from his moral code, which, you know, that's not entirely certain he ever really had that. But And now he's the big dog. Arf, arf. Yes. <laughs> but uh, my big takeaway for this episode is uh, how much, like, in a weird way, like, a tragic character Octavian is. Because, like, I I know some of like what his character like becomes in the future just like through history and like this episode we've seen hints of it in prior episodes but i think we get a bigger one here just like with the whole them talking about how like he's gonna be like the the pontiff or whatever and he says i'd rather like write my poetry like i think like his family ruined him like and like the world around him just like all the politics and crap he has to deal with like I think in another world without all that nonsense, Octavian would have just been like a philosopher or like maybe an artist or like a poet because he says he likes what like just like would have been like a fan of like literature and the arts. But like this family has like turned him into this like sociopathic, like political monster that like will sleep with his own sister because like he views it as like something to be gained. And I like I like the tragic elements of that. I'll try to keep this brief. My favorite character is Polo. Uh, I'm not a fan of how this episode ended for him, just for the actions that he did. However, all the other episodes, we have truly seen development for him. He started off as this kind of crude, crass, didn't really seem like he cared about what he was doing and he, to an, many extents, he probably actually didn't care about what he was doing. He just wanted to fight, kill, and call it a day. Um, but as we move forward with him in the series, we are seeing so much from him, and especially when we hear the stories about his parents, and it, we're seeing... It's whenever we see the moments of vulnerability for Polo... That is when I think the true character comes out. And I think that he is just so much more complex. And I think we're leading where we, when we look at him at face value, he just seems like this stereotypical military guy that just wants to make uh, sex jokes all the time, but he's so much more than that. And I think typical, (laughs) I like that generalization, but like that is the generalization that many people would look at him with. He just wants to fight, make joke, inappropriate jokes and call it a day. But there's so much more to him. I think that there are, it's like an ogre. It has layers. I think Polo has layers. <laughs> Polo truly is the Shrek of this series. <laughs> and Shasher too. 
Get out of my Varinus is square. Yikes, that was bad. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob, uh, by the way, your Varinus is square thing, that's that's in Miles this episode. We desperately needed a name for that location. Yeah. Right. Um, all right, guys. We've got enough time here that I could at least share my part of this. So now, guys, we all get a chance to share some kind of aspect of your list, okay? So I'll go ahead and review my list again. My favorite characters are Mike Antony, Caesar, Varinus, and Atia. Uh, I really only added Caesar to that list of characters I already liked. And the reason that these people are on my list is because they are consistent in their values. And those values have ripened, matured, or these characters had to reckon with these values as the series has worn on. Or these characters may have an utter lack of values. At least one of them, Antony, is consistently hedonistic and petty. I'm pretty sure he stole like 500 gold coins that first episode. That was never addressed again because Caesar gave him a thousand to look for Gauls. He paid Verena's 500. God, oh, yeah. Antony rules. Um, next up, Caesar is a consistently political animal, and he's become increasingly confident in his powers, thinking he could subdue Egypt with half a legion and negotiations. Again, Antony ego-checked him in the last episode, which is saying something. But again, as Caesar has to reckon with this uh, and what he is or who he is and his pursuit of power, who is the real Caesar? Is it the one that explodes at Varinus for not killing Pompey? Is it the one that welcomes back Brutus and Cicero with open arms? Is it the one that cries as he looks into Pompey's funeral pyre? Like, where where is the real Caesar and all that? What is his true feelings about who he is as a person? Varinus's moral code battles the world around him, and we he keeps finding reasons to help the side against his morality. I swear we are two episodes away from Varinus getting a mansion from Caesar if he serves as Antony's co-consul, and Varinus is going to say, no, Niobe, it's okay. I can change it from the inside. Um, and finally, <laughs> I was going to say that Adia's consistent value is ambition, but honestly, a better word for it may be insecurity, or maybe they could both be there. But we know that she feels very personally insecure in the episode where she cries to Octavian that she's all alone and is later scorned and called a harpy by Antony. And insecurity drives her ambition. When Caesar is a weak it, it, when Caesar is in a weak position, she schemes to keep her family secure, like trying to convince Antony to turn on him or trying to get Octavia to appeal to Servilia for protection before Pharsalus. So all of my favorite characters up to this point have been consistent in their values. And while, for example, my heart breaks for Octavia, um, uh, her uh, inconsistent values is the best way I can put it. Um, so... Uh, I'll, I'll leave that piece being said. My top four. Uh, the only character that did not make it this time, but if I had a number five option, this is where he would go. I had Mark Antony kind of drop down just a couple of spots. It really has had nothing to do with uh, him, his character, or the portrayal of the character or anything like that. I think what Kay said about Mark Antony is spot on. Uh, I moved Octavian into the top four though because Octavian as much as I don't agree with the actions of him in this episode you can just see like if you can see like the contrast of how I felt about him in episode one versus up now it is a 90 difference I think there's so much more complexity to his character than we were than I was thinking would happen in that very first episode he is politically smart he knows what his he knows his worth in the political game and he 
is like Cole said, even though it's or Jacob said after sharing his favorite moment with the moment with Octavian where he's still supportive of Octavia, despite what was going besides him knowing what she was wanting. Uh, Varinus, I put in the top three this time because the more I the more I see of this character, the more I love him. Like he is just, he just keeps getting better for me each time. Octavia still remains my second favorite character despite this episode. Uh, and that's just because I think part of it is, is I do feel in, in some ways, some sympathy for her because uh, I don't agree with the actions of this episode, but it, I don't want to blame her for every single bit of action that is, she has taken in this episode, in this episode or in previous episodes, because she is just, so taken advantage of she is intelligent but sometimes she is just very misguided in how she is being manipulated and i think that that is not entirely on her i think that is just messing with her psychologically and it's going to heavily traumatize her but i don't think all the blame should be put on octavia well well said bp well said uh the aspect i'll share is uh the inclusion of pompey as my number four and I think part of it is like the the idea of Pompey that I have in my head that was kind of like given to us, like that they like told us about in the show. Like he's this great general, like was like a great leader. And that, that I think part is like a sympathy that like we'll probably not get like a, a good showing of that in a lot of like entertainment mediums because like any series that does like Roman history, like that folks on like Caesar because like that he's like one of the most important figures in Roman history like they're going to focus on like the the part where he was like transitioning it into like an empire so there's not good odds that we would see like young Pompey like in his prime like when he was like cool so like we're just going to like see him as in the the old guy that lost to Caesar but not it's not just out of like that idea and like what we'll never get it's that last episode he has where he has that conversation with Varinus just felt like was such a humanizing thing and like felt like such a real moment with him that he just like shot up my list and like finally felt like a real character as opposed to just kind of like a a caricature that Caesar was supposed to fight. Okay, okay. Well said, Cole. And Jacob, what do you have to talk about? I want to talk about my list. Uh, my list is volatile. <laughs> people can fall off the list. People can get on the list on a whim. It's all about um, it's all about good character moments and motivation. And I want to talk about who's not on the list, mm-hmm. right? And that is one queen of Egypt, Cleopatra. And you better you better bet your buckus. Um, <laughs> that's not a word. I got to censor that. <laughs> you better bet your buckus that uh, if Cleopatra was in this episode, she'd be in my list because that woman exudes a lot of things, confidence, charisma, charm, sexuality, a child. Uh, a child. <laughs> she exuded a child. Um, and, you know, I just I'm just saying. Give her more screen time. I know, I know she's involved in all of this. So once you give her more screen time, she's she's gunning for the top. Cause that's a that's a cool lady over there. All right. Is this to say, Jacob, like if I could maybe rephrase this, do you feel like Cleopatra's currently underutilized in the series? Well, actually no. 
because oh. the series is being very moment to moment like uh in, it it visits the very major moments uh and beats very sparringly like we take a lot of time to delve in personal matters mm-hmm. and so where i don't really know how you would find a way to work cleopatra and all those at all like the inner workings of roman citizens and their polit- or personal lives but um so no but i do want to see more of her somehow <laughs> all right all right all right well guys uh we'll get on to our, our outro here all right um next week we are going to be watching hbo's rome season one episode 10 triumph someone's winning i guess tweet your thoughts about hbo's rome to at dotrr pod on twitter if you want to learn more about the real history this uh behind this episode roughly the second half of death of the roman republic chapter 13 grudge match and affairs in alexandria and africa covers this which i know i said that exact same thing last week but that chapter uh covered the death of cato at the very end the rest of this uh, HBO episode took a lot of uh, creative liberties with history. Some were good, some I personally didn't like. Please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts if you are able to. And my fellow host, do you have anything to promote this week? My name is Jacob. You can follow me on Twitter at SoupCatFishYolo. I've actually been tweeting some funny stuff lately. Um, and there's a YouTube channel that one day I will post something <laughs> on. Once I find the time to edit copious amounts of footage, thank you. I oh, didn't me. say the name of the YouTube channel, The Great Wilds. Now I'm finished. Go. Pee-pee. I thought you were pulling a coal. <laughs> <laughs> Follow me on Letterbox BP Oil Spill ninety eight and uh, Florence Pugh. If you are listening to this, <laughs> <laughs> just know. Excellent. I am single as a Pringle. <laughs> We, uh, to be clear, guys, we, uh, listeners, guys, uh, we are recording this the day after, uh, the glorious news that Florence Pugh is single and, um, Zach Braff, you're listening to this, I'm single supreme now. <laughs> oh, man. Zach Braff, I love Scrubs. <laughs> and I, I almost watch Wish I Was, Wish You Were There, Wish I, Garden State is another movie you made. Anyway, whatever. Wait, you <laughs> said you love Scrubs, so you've been watching another television show? Um, there I love the apparel. <laughs> Hospital yeah, uh, fashion uh, is the best. Yeah. Um, Fill in your bingo card, folks. Get, getting on to um, um, uh, my personal theory or mindset. I'm sorry to soapbox you, Cole. Um, I've said this before to you guys, I think. It is so weird to me that um, we are all roughly Florence Pugh's age. And we watch Scrubs, or uh, most of us watch Scrubs, and l- look at it like it's like, this is a really funny show. It's got a lot of heart. Zach Braff, uh, great actor on there. And Florence Pugh watched that at our same age and said, um, oh, but, I oh, am going to find that man. And um, and then the rest of the weekend tweets or whatever. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyways, Cole, what do you have to promote? Jeez, God. <laughs> Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Lobordy. That's L-I-L underscore B-O-R-T-Y. I post on there kind of infrequently. Sometimes I'll go on tears. Other times it'll be a, a drought for a while. It's a it's really tough to say. Right now I'm, we're in a bit of a drought, but if something funny comes to mind, I'll be sure to put it up there to mediocre response because I'm only as funny as I think I am. I have notifications on for Cole, and when Cole does start tweeting, it's kind of like a Kanye on Twitter back in the day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you? <laughs>
<laughs> that wasn't a compliment. <laughs> they were happy being slaves. They were happy. They would have left if they weren't. Anyway, <laughs> I think that wraps things, gentlemen. So, with all that being said, and a lot was said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show. Oh.